0: is where we're going to be today, and um, as you're flipping there, let me just kind of tell you about a few neat neat things that are are going on at Crosspoint. Number one, um, a couple days ago, I think it was Thursday, uh, we had another little baby born into the tribe, and she is the 8th Grandchild of Cecil and Betty Cheeves, and she is the daughter of their youngest daughter, Issa Meeks and uh, little Josephine Elizabeth Meeks was born into the the meeks family slash Cheeves family slash cross point tribe last uh, last thursday and um, she is as cute as a button, and she only has one other girl grandchild in the family, so it 's two girls against six boys, I think. But um, if any of you know Issa, you know that she is um, sort of like energy waiting to happen. And um, just a couple hours after uh, giving birth to like somebody actually like a baby sort of came out of her. And um, just a few hours after that, she's jumping up on the bed doing somersaults and um, did not look like she just had a baby. But praise the Lord for little Josephine Elizabeth Meeks. Um, And then um, also some news on the uh, young people front, Um, one of our young guys that has been at Crosspoint since the beginning, and uh, who has just been uh, just one of those guys who is just got a heart for Jesus and people and children, his name is Colt Miley, and um, Colt came across this young lady, uh, a year or so ago and evidently, um, worked some game and got her, got her to actually go out on a date with him. And evidently those dates continued and, um, they've still been hanging around and somewhere in that process, um, he out punted his coverage and, um, and somewhere along the line, maybe a month or so ago, he got down on one knee and he asked this young lady who uh, currently is known as Aaron Pringle, but will soon be known as Aaron Miley. He asked her to be his wife and and uh, like one of the Old Testament miracles, she she said. Yes. And so where is Colt and Aaron? Where are they? I don't see it yet. Where where are they? They're right there in the back. Yeah. I'm just you did pretty good for yourself too, Aaron. And uh and that proud mama right next to them is Melody Colt's mom. Um, we're so proud of them. And and then today and uh maybe um you know, just kinda maybe the most special um, uh, event that's happened for a variety of reasons over the past month is for the first time in a few weeks, um, back with us today is Lucy Jones. And Bruce and Lucy are sitting right there behind uh, Bob and Sissy. And a couple weeks ago, they had their third child, another little girl, Luli Jones. And so um, praise the Lord for that. I know Reynolds told you about that when uh, I think that Sunday afterwards. But um, I don't know if you know what um, really went down that, night at doctor's hospital um lucy uh the delivery went okay but there uh, shortly thereafter it was basically a day's worth of labor they went in early in the morning and then lucy did not actually deliver until about two or three o'clock in the morning the next day and um she gave birth to luli and everything seemed to be fine and uh, a midwife did the delivery and then her um placenta just just there were some complications there, and it wouldn't wouldn't come out and so um at three o'clock in the morning, they made a emergency call to uh, another person in the tribe, dr Rich Stevens, and he was roused from his sleep was at doctor's hospital within a matter of minutes and as Bruce tells me, when he walked into the door of the hospital. Of the room, he was still basically half asleep, but by the time he walked five steps to Lucy's bedside, and he saw how potentially grave and serious the situation was, and it was, it was very serious. Bruce said that he was wide awake. And he, um, he through the training that he has gone through as a physician and through the gift of healing that God has given him, um, through surgery, performed really a miracle that night. And so it's solely by God's grace and by the gifted hands of a physician that Lucy is here today. And so, Lucy, um, it's just so um, we're just so thankful for uh, you and Bruce and, and baby Luli and and Rich for um, your your anointed hands of healing. And um, and we just thank God that you are here today. Praise God. Praise God. Yeah. All right, well, Nehemiah 9 is where we're going to be today, and um, we have about five more weeks left in our Nehemiah series, and I hope that you have enjoyed it, and um, I hope that it has been beneficial for you. It has been very, very good for me as a leader, and today we're going to read a a long chapter. Uh, It's a tough chapter, really. But it's a beautiful chapter because basically it preaches itself. And so I'm going to read through this chapter. And then at the end of my uh, message and our time together in Nehemiah 9, we're going to receive communion together. We do that on the first Sunday of the month where we pause to, as a congregation, encourage all Christians that are here with us to participate in communion together with us. You don't have to be a member of this church. I think the Bible's pretty clear that this is something that Christians do. It's a family meal where we remember Jesus' work on the cross. And so if you're not a Christian, um, this really would be kind of meaningless to you. It's not that if you accidentally do it, something bad's going to happen to you, but we take this very serious. And so if you know that you're not a Christian and you're just kind of investigating, trying to figure out who Jesus is, um, um, this is kind of a family meal today, but if you're not from this church and you're... A believer in Jesus, we want to welcome you to do this with us today. We're going to read through Nehemiah 9, and just by way of catching us up on where we are in Nehemiah, in fact, why we're doing Nehemiah, is Nehemiah is basically the journal entry of a man who uh, called Nehemiah, who was the governor of God's Old Testament people, the nation of Israel, and basically it is the telling of the story of the construction project. God, and I go through this every Sunday, so I'll shorten it up a little bit, but God. In the Old Testament is, in fact, in the whole Bible, he is reconciling the world to himself through Christ. And he is, in the Old Testament, forming a group of people called the nation of Israel, the Jewish Hebrew people. And he's wanting to make them into his people and give them a place of land and have them build a city and a temple so that through those people he could bless all the nations of the earth. In fact, that's what he promised that first Jewish man, Abram, who later became Abraham, and so he begins this nation of Israel, his descendants, and they continually rebel, and God continually shows them grace, and, and eventually they're in captivity. And now they're coming back to the promised land, to the city of Jerusalem, to this piece of land that is still disputed today in the hands of the nations. And they're building this broken-down city so that through this physical place, this nation of Israel and this city of Jerusalem and this temple, that through that God can bless all the nations of the earth, because it's never God's intention just to bless one group of people, but He wants to take His church, His people, and bless all the peoples of the earth. And so the parallel for us is that likewise we are building not a physical city like Jerusalem or a, a, an actual temple, because the Bible says in the New Testament that we are the temple of the Holy Spirit, but we are building a spiritual city and with a million other churches all around this world that love and proclaim and believe in Jesus. We together are becoming a spiritual city that God is rebuilding so that through us God can bless all the peoples of the earth. And so that's the, that's the analogy between the Old Testament construction project of Nehemiah And what we're doing here as a young church, trying to build ourselves into a place that God can actually use to bless all the peoples in our area. And so Nehemiah has gathered the people. They've come back from captivity, and they are now gathered in Jerusalem. They have rebuilt the wall, and they have faced opposition. They faced external opposition. There was these guys named Sanballat and Tobiah. And Geshem the Arab, and they were trying to stop the project. The bottom line there is that any time you try and do something for God, it will be fiercely opposed. There are enemies of the gospel. The gospel is offensive. The work of God is offensive. It will be opposed. And so they had to endure that external opposition. But they also had to endure internal strife and turmoil. People get restless. People get weary. People are inherently selfish. Selfish and whenever you're doing something for god whether it is building an old testament city back to what it should be or starting to plant a church it is a internal struggle people, sheep bite sheep get mad at each other sheep sheep fuss and so Nehemiah had to deal with internal struggle and finally they have the wall built and now they have this exterior wall and city rebuilt god now is starting to work on the hearts of the people and a couple of weeks ago we read Nehemiah 8 where they broke open the book of the law and they read and it brought great great sorrow because they realized how out of line they were with it. But then it also, the priest said, no, no, we should also be joyful. And now we get back into this Nehemiah 9 where we find that it's going to also bring some more confession and repentance. And so um, let's, let's begin in Nehemiah 9. And as we um, open to Nehemiah 9, um, this is... Um, If you're a visitor here today, this is an interesting, this chapter, this is not going to be a whole lot of fun, I'm just telling you. If you're here today for the first time, you picked a doozy. (laughs) Um, But we believe that we should preach through the Bible and that we should just handle it. And this stuff's hard, man. And and let me tell you, this, this chapter has been, the Holy Spirit has been sitting on me through this chapter this week. Well, let's pray, and then we'll read and ask God to help us. Lord, as we open up your book, and as we prepare to read this incredible account in Nehemiah 9 of, of confession and repentance and how you stirred the hearts of the people to examine their lives, I pray that you would do the same for us. Lord, I feel kind of like... I have been in, and we collectively as a group of people have been in a little bit of a rut. Some of us are a little weary, and um, our, our spiritual eyes are unfocused. So, God, would you break up fallow ground, and would you go beyond my feeble words, and would you, with the precision that is only in you by your Holy Spirit, would you shoot your arrows right into our hearts And then would it produce change in us? Would it produce refreshing in us? As Peter preaches in Acts 3, he says that after repentance comes refreshing. Now, Lord, I have spent all week reading this chapter, and I've come up with some thoughts. So I have, in a sense, arranged the wood. But only you can bring the fire. So I pray that you would bring fire to our hearts and that you would blow through this place and this tribe with your Holy Spirit afresh. Move in us, Jesus. And we pray this in your good and great name. Amen. All right, I've got five little points and then one question. Is is we're going to work through this. Nehemiah 9 verse 1. It says now on the twenty fourth day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting, and in sackcloth, and with earth on their heads. <laughs> so, the, I mean, the, the, these people are ta- God is moving on their hearts. I mean, when you start wearing divots as hair pieces, you know something is afoot. You know they're and they got you know potato sacks for shirts. And there, you know, there's something that comes. We are such private people. We are such dignified people that when God moves on us, it's like we try and bottle it up because God forbid that anybody see us actually reacting to the power of the Holy Spirit. We got to break free from that. Be yourself. I'm not saying don't rev it up just to rev it up. But look, this is a place where you can shout, where you can cry, where you can say, "Amen," where you can shout right on, where you can say, "Ah, come on, we've got to be a place like that. There's nothing worse than a pristine religious environment where people have to put on airs. Amen. Yeah, all right, we're <laughs> Now now I'm feeling it. Just, but make it genuine, you know. I mean, don't, don't, don't try and don't don't try and work. Just, just put mud on our heads. Okay. Verse two. And the Israelites, listen to this. Separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. One of the great themes of the two books that go together, Ezra and Nehemiah, is that God is purifying His people, and He's. He's separating them from foreigners. Now, in fact, in Ezra, he tells him that they should not marry foreigners. Now, of course, we now know that, that, that we're not taking that as a, as a biblical mandate against marrying people of other ethnicities or cultures. In fact, I think that's a good thing. I, I, think, I think that interracial marriage glorifies God. But what I think is, is p- p- God is doing through the Old Testament people of Israel he is forming for himself. At that point, it was an ethnic group of people. And now in the New Covenant, it is a spiritual group of people. He is forming for himself a people. And he's not wanting them to mix with the pagan practices of these Gentiles. And so when you read stuff there about how it, he, it was to separate them from foreigners, we we should not be like that. But we should be separate from a culture that is carnal and fallen and Regrettably, what is sort of the norm in church world today, especially younger churches like us, is like as we're trying to be as cool and as hip and prove God's grace to a world so that maybe they'll think we're cool and come hang out with us. I mean that that is absolutely the opposite direction that the Bible goes. It says, let them see Jesus and his greatness in you. Don't see how close you can walk to the cultural lines. God calls us to separate ourselves, but in a unique missional sort of way, live in culture. Live in culture. And so, I think that's just a a convicting statement about the holiness of the church. Verse 3. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. Remember a couple of weeks ago when we read Nehemiah 8 and I said, wouldn't it be awesome if we all gathered on Saturday out in the front lawn of the schoolhouse and I read for eight or hour, four hours? Not going to happen. But, I mean, this is God's moving. For another quarter of it they made confession and worshipped the Lord their God. Verse 4, on the stairs of the Levites, meaning the priests, stood Jeshua, Bani, Cadmeal, Shebaniah, Bunny. <laughs> <laughs> I hope he was tough. <laughs> Sharebiah, Bani, and Chenena, and they cry. Listen to this, and they crowd with a loud voice to their God. Again, there's just something raw about these people. They're, they're, they'll actually sing out loud. They will shout to the God to their God with a voice of triumph. I mean, again, I'm not trying to produce a reaction in you, but I think that we need to get out of cultural reserved Christianity because you know you know what that attracts? It's about as exciting as a as a wet sock. But people oh God, I don't even remember where that came from. But people that are but people that are just on fire for Jesus. However that looks in your life, there's a there's a there's a, it comes out of you, is what I'm trying to say. It comes out of you, and I realize that I, I'm the son of a football coach, and basically all my communication is a halftime speech. So I'm not saying you got to be, you got to spit on the front row like I do, but I'm saying that there's some earnestness when a people are going after Jesus. And God, give us earnestness, and give us the, give us just the humility to be undignified. In the presence of the Lord. Then the Levites, Yeshua, Kadmiel, Bani, Hashabaniah, Sherebiah, Hodiah, Shebaniah, and Pethahiah said, Stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. Then begins, which is the rest of the chapter, one of the longest prayers in the Bible. Verse 6, and we don't know who's saying this, but the Levites, one of them He says, verse 6, you are the Lord, you alone. And what we have here in the next 30 or so verses is a beautiful recounting of the history, a summary statement, leaving out many of the details, but a summary statement of God's faithfulness to the nation of Israel from the beginning in Genesis 11 with Abram and Abraham, later becomes Abraham, all the way through the present time where they are in Nehemiah. Verse 6, you are the Lord, you alone. You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their host, The earth and all that is on it. The seas and all that is in them. And you preserve all of them. And the host of heaven worships you. The host of heaven meaning like angels. Even angels worship you. Verse 7. You are the Lord, the God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. Verse 8. You found his heart faithful before you and made with him the covenant to give to his offspring the land of the Canaanite the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Jebusite, and the Girgashite, and you have kept your promises, for you are righteous. Statement number one that jumps out to me as I read this is that God works with messed up, fearful people. In these few verses, it says that God used a man named Abram, who later he called Abraham. And all of us know that Abraham was the father of our faith, Right? And Abraham had many sons, and many sons had Father Abraham, and I am one of them, and so are you, so let's all praise the Lord. Yeah, that's right. You remember Father Abraham, and we tend to think of him as some giant of the faith, and he is, but simultaneously he's also a scared coward who on two separate occasions in the book of Genesis, as God has called him, one time God shows up directly, calls him, speaks to him, and moments later, it seems like in the chapter... He sells he is prepared to sell out his wife, Sarah, because evidently she was beautiful and she attracted the attention of other men. And so when he was standing before another king who was threatening to Abraham, he was ready. In fact, he did lie to that other king on two separate occasions and told them that Sarah was his sister and not his wife so that he didn't kill him to get his wife. That's not a good way to, <laughs> to be a good husband, by the way. I don't know if you knew that or not. But do you, but yet, Abraham's also this incredibly chivalrous man. God uses twisted, duplicitous, contradictory, fearful hypocrites. That's why in in First and Second Kings and one chapter, the prophet Elijah is calling down fire on the 400 or 450. How many of there are prophets of Baal? And then just a chapter or so later, he's running from a scared, crazy woman named Jezebel. Why are those stories in the Bible? Well, they're the history of God's people, but they're also a reflection of us. Are we not duplicitous, scared, fearful, messed up people? But God uses people like us. Like Abraham. Isn't that encouraging? Verse 9. And you saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt and heard their cry at the Red Sea and performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants and all the people of his land. For you knew that they acted arrogantly against your fathers. And you made a name for yourself. That's what God does. God, is, God created everything for his glory. The sooner you view life through that lens, the better sense. Everything, whether it be evil or good, will make to you that God created everything for his glory. And you made a name for yourself as it is to this day. Verse 11, and you divided the sea before them so that they went through the midst of the sea on dry land and you cast their pursuers into the depths as a stone into mighty waters. Verse 12, by a pillar of cloud you led them in the day and by a pillar of fight uh, fire in the night to light for them the way in which they should go. Verse 13, you came down on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven and gave them, listen to this, gave them right rules and true laws, good statutes and commandments. And you made known to them your holy Sabbath and commanded them commandments and statutes and a law by Moses your servant. You gave them bread for their hunger and brought water for them out of the rock for their thirst. And you told them to go in to possess the land that you had sworn to give to them. Statement number two, point number two, is that God, God's word and his way is good for us. It took me a while to realize that. Like we tend to walk into Christianity, and maybe it's because we grow up in the fundamentalist South. Bible Belt, where the answer basically to every question is no. Can I go to the dance? No. Can I start wearing makeup? No. Can I, can I go out? No. That we we tend to view incorrectly that God's way and God's law and the restrictions that he put on us are for somehow our lack of enjoyment. And actually, it's it's good for us. It is joyful. It's better to live God's way. It's better to Work out your sexuality in a way that God prescribes in the Bible. It's better to treat alcohol in a way that God prescribes in the Bible. It's better to spend your money generously and not hoard it for yourself. It's actually good for you, right? So we're we're fundamentalists here. We believe that we should live according to the word, but we're we're just trying to put the fun back in fundamentalists, you know? God's way gives us great joy. It should give us great joy. Let's keep reading. Verse 16. But, and he, here's the amazing thing about this chapter is, is is it just recounts God's continued faithfulness in the face of the people's unfaithfulness. And this prayer is so God-centered. In fact, the word you, meaning God, appears like over 50 times in this one prayer. Verse 16. But they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them but they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in egypt listen to this but you are a god ready to forgive gracious and merciful slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and did not forsake them verse 18 listen to this even when they had made for themselves a golden calf and said this is your God who you brought up out of Egypt and had committed great blasphemies. You in your great mercy did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud to lead them in the way did not depart from them by day nor the pillar of fire by night to light for them the way by which they should go. You gave them your good spirit to instruct them and did not withhold your manna from their mouth and gave them water for their thirst for ye- Forty years you sustained them in the wilderness, and they lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out, and their feet did not swell. Point number three is, and we need to realize this, is that the human heart, from the beginning of time until now, the human heart is an idol factory. It's easy for us to look down our noses through the centuries as modern 21st century people and say these goofy people they actually made a golden baby cow and they worshiped that after god opened the red sea i mean how ridiculous can that be i mean how can you worship an idol after god has been so good to you but friends don't don't we do the same i mean i actually I actually think they're a little less ridiculous. I mean, think at the, look at the things they wor- we worship in our day and age. Looks. We've created a culture where women are racked with insecurity because our young girls grow up and they want to look like the skinny little heroin addict supermodels on the cover of magazines. It's ridiculous. And they're reacting to the idolatry of men who thirst after that garbage. <laughs> There's a statistic that's floating around the Internet now amongst Christian you know, leaders. Somebody's doing some statistics on the church, especially in this recession age. You know that the um, average American Christian gave a higher percentage of their income during the Great Depression than we do now. We are hoarders. The shows that we watch on TV, come on, I I mean, I don't want to bang on this and I'm not going to mention any because if I don't mention yours, you're like, yes! (laughs) (laughs) But I mean, let me just, guys, it's just, the garbage that's on TV in the evenings is filled. It's filled with sexual innuendo. It's just, it's horrible for our souls. And how, like let's think about it. Like some of us are so much more familiar with the plot line of insert your show than you, than, than you are with just the basic outline of, like Philippians. And then like and then we have the nerve to get upset with God when he doesn't move on our behalf or when our church isn't quite as thriving as we want it to be or or you know my marriage isn't what what it wants to be because I'm feasting on maggots every night. Getting up early so I can sit in the tanning bed for 30 minutes. And occasionally stumbling across a scripture. Criticizing a preacher because he says something that offends you. It's a wonder that God even deals with us at all and friends i uh, i am right there with you God stir us break us out of this incestuous carnal selfish petty ridiculous Cultural Christianity. And cause us to repent. we don't worship golden calves. We worship even more ridiculous things. I mean at the end of the day. All we got is shriveled up skin from a tanning bed. At least they had a piece of gold. Verse 22. And you gave them kingdoms and peoples and allotted to them every corner. And this is recounting. Listen, this is really significant because um, what this paragraph covers is the period when Joshua led the people into the promised land across the Jordan River. And um, they, they, um, what, what's notable here is that Joshua's name is not even mentioned So it may seem like we're doing it, but we're not doing it. God's doing it. Listen to this, verse 22. And you gave them kingdoms and peoples and allotted to them every corner. So they took possession of the land of Sion, king of Heshbon, and the land of Og, king of Bashan. You multiplied their children as the stars of heaven, and you brought them into the land that you had told their fathers to enter and possess. So the descendants went in and possessed the land, and you subdued before them the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, and gave them into their hand with their kings and and the peoples of their land that they might do with them as they would. And they captured fortified cities and a rich land and took possession of houses full of all good things, cisterns already hewn, vineyards, olive orchards, and fruit trees in abundance. Listen to this. So they ate and were filled and became fat and delighted themselves in your great goodness. Look, I think God was happy that they were delighting themselves in God's goodness, but it was never God's intention for them to become fat on his goodness. There's a difference between being spiritually fit and being able to be used by God and being spiritually selfish and fat. And here's the point that I think comes out of this, and this is my fourth point, is that we were, we were not saved to be cul-de-sacs. Like, we live in a culture that consumes. Christianity, and we run off, listen, we run off from Bible study to Bible study to Bible study with the same group of people at the same locations covering the same stuff, like when, like when do we get out of the receiver mode and get into the pouring out God's love on a broken world mode, like when, when, when do... When do we stop becoming a place that stuff dead ends on? Like, I, I'm, listen, I don't want to contradict everything I say. Go to, go to a thousand and one Bible studies. But there seems to be like this religious culture in our town where we just, you know, Tuesday I go to Joe's and Thursday I go to Billy Bob's and Friday I'm at Susie's and, and then we just trade Facebook messages where we talk about how good it was. But all the while we're getting fat and God forbid we actually step up and unpack it for our lost friend or invite somebody to church or serve a weak spot in our church because we just want to consume, don't we? And run from Bible study to Bible study or this thing to that thing and be part of the little Christian cool culture in our city and it's incredibly incestuous and selfish and I think we're part of it so God break us out of that if you are a visitor here today I just want to tell you that I I have thoroughly enjoyed our one Sunday together alright let's go <laughs> oh Jesus Jesus Verse 26, nevertheless, what a word. (laughs) Nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind their back and killed your prophets. (laughs) I mean, God was so good to them. He's dropping loaves of bread from heaven, parting bodies of water for them on two different occasions, putting up with their golden calves. Nevertheless, They and we are disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind their back and killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you. And they committed great blasphemies. Therefore, you gave them into the hand of their enemies who made them suffer. That's an important sentence. God works like that. God gave them into the hands of their enemy who made them suffer. Listen, this is a tough truth. And you won't get this truth if you feast on sitcoms and don't read your Bible. But the Bible is full of it. And it's this, that God is providentially in control of everything, both good and evil. And God uses evil that we experience in these 80 years, which is nothing in comparison to eternity. He uses evil as a way of purifying his people. God's hands are not tied on anything. He gives these people over to their enemies to fashion in them what he wants in their lives. And in the time of their suffering, they cried out to you and you heard them from heaven. And according to your great mercies, you gave them saviors who saved them from the hand of their enemies. But after they had rest, they did evil again before you and you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies so that they had dominion over them. Yet when they turned and cried to you, you heard from heaven, and many times you delivered them according to their mercies. Over and over again, God is merciful. Verse 29, And you warned them in order to turn them back to your law. They acted. Yet they acted presumptuously and did not obey your commandments, but sinned against your rules, which if a person does them, he shall live by them. And turned a stubborn shoulder and stiffened their neck and would not obey. Verse 30, Many years you bore with them and warned them by your spirit, though through your prophets, yet they would not give ear. Therefore, you gave them into the hands of the peoples of the lands. Nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. This paragraph starts with nevertheless. And this paragraph ends with nevertheless. The first nevertheless is the people. God had been good. Nevertheless, the people had been, uh, people rebelled against him. And it ends with, even though the people rebelled, nevertheless, God was gracious. Let me just do this real quickly because we're running out of time here. But nevertheless is a, it's a word bridge. It's a, for those of you like me that grew up in the 70s on Schoolho- Schoolhouse Rock, it's a conjunction. Conjunction, junction. <laughs> what's your function? <laughs> All right, I'll tell you what conjunction junction what your function is. It's a word bridge. It means that everything that becomes that comes before nevertheless as true as it may be is overruled by whatever comes after nevertheless, right? So whatever even if it's true in the first part, it gets kind of overridden by what's on the second half of that sentence. So um uh, an example was a couple of years ago. My uh, my son Joseph wanted to. He was starting out school and he wanted to take a little stuffed animal to class. And he said to me, "Daddy, um, I want to take this stuffed animal to class." And I said, "Well, the teacher clearly said at the beginning of the year that you could not take stuffed animals to class." And he said, "He said, well, Katie brought a stuffed animal to class." And that was a true statement. Katie brought a stuffed animal to class. That's true. Nevertheless. <laughs> I'm your daddy, and you ain't taking yours class. <laughs> See, what, what comes after nevertheless has more weight than come, what comes before nevertheless. And here's the fifth point. We have two neverthelesses in this paragraph. The first is that God had been so gracious, nevertheless the people continued to rebel. And so the in this sense... At the beginning of the paragraph, our rebellion is greater. It's overpowering God's goodness, and we're, we're, we're rebelling against it. But there's another nevertheless, and it's, it's in spite of our rebellion, God still shows us mercy. And so the point is, is that, and thank God for this, God's, God's gracious and merciful nevertheless is always stronger than our rebellious nevertheless. Thank God for that. All right, let's keep going. We'll be done in a second. Verse 32. Now, therefore, our God, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love, let not all the hardship seem little to you that has come upon us, upon our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and all your people since the time of the kings of Assyria until this day. Verse 33. Yet you have been righteous in all that has come upon us, for you have dealt faithfully and we have acted wickedly. What a statement. 34. Our kings, our princes, our priests, and our fathers have not kept your law or paid attention to the commandments and your warnings that you gave them. Even in their own kingdom, enjoying your great goodness that you gave them, and in the large and rich land that you set before them, they did not serve you or turn from their wicked ways. Listen to this now. Verse 36. Behold, we are slaves this day in the land that you gave our fathers to enjoy its fruit and its good gifts Behold, we are slaves. So they're saying, we are in the place that you carved out for us and called us to be in. But yet, because of our rebellion, even though we're in the place that you have called us to be, we are still slaves to this foreign pagan king. Verse 37, and its rich yield goes to the kings whom you have set over us because of our sins. They rule over our bodies and over our livestock as they please. And we are in great distress. I've had five points. Here's my question. What are we slaves to? What are we slaves to? This chapter has been about um, repentance. And um, I don't want to beat you up over the head and talk about TV shows (laughs) or tanning beds. And not tell you that I'm right there with you. Um, for the past year, I feel like I have been in a funk. A year ago, when I Jennifer and I started this church, um, I was going through a. I was. Finishing up seminary and was going through kind of a theological um, shift in my life. I was deciding kind of where I stood on some important issues and um, was trying to figure out. I was realizing that I was woefully unprepared to start a church, but in God's grace, He used me anyway. And from the beginning of this church, I've had this passion to be a church that delves into truth and really handles even the difficult issues of the Bible and doesn't preach silly, goofy, little pragmatic sermons, you know, seven steps to being a better, you know, boat rider. <laughs> I mean, just the goofy stuff that we preach on. I mean, to actually preach to the scriptures and to handle difficult truths. And about a year ago, as a church, we came across a pretty difficult truth about the sovereignty of God in salvation. And um, a couple of years before, I had internally landed on kind of what I thought the Scripture said and was just talking about it with you know, our, our leadership team, and, and it caused a, a bit of a split. Not a split. It caused, it caused a, few, a few folks to leave. And I understand why. I mean, it's a difficult truth. It was never my heart. They didn't have to leave because they disagreed with me. But, hey, I understand. But since that time, I think there's been kind of a combination of sadness and self-absorption in my life. Um, because it's it's not easy to have people disagree with you. And when you don't, when you feel like we can... Kind of still be part of the same faith family even if we disagree on this subject, but then to have them kind of walk away and i'm not I'm not trying to be defensive it just it, honestly guys it hurt a little bit, and then that hurt I didn't deal with that well and it and it caused me to be self absorbed and 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 defensive honestly and it's and it's caused me to be a little bit fearful and kind of lead scared and i I repent of that. I repent of that. I also feel like it's kind of caused some of you to sort of walk on eggshells around those difficult truths in the Bible. And I think that's terrible for us as a church. And I think it's terrible for you. I want you to know that like, I'm going to give my life to this church. Not at the expense of my family. Unintentionally. I have allowed myself to become way too important. I have some agreement. <laughs> Preach right on, brother. And I realize that a big part of me is still a slave. A slave to the opinion of man. And I understand how... Pastors can do something and then absolutely blow their lives up five or ten years into it. And I think through the preaching of Nehemiah and through God's gracious spirit, he is, he is in his grace getting a hold of my heart and saying, you're slave. You are a slave to that. Get over it and love people and preach courageously and people will come and people will go but have the heart of a lion and the height of a rhinoceros because it's not about me it's not about this church it's not about my success as a minister it's about the great and glorious gospel of Jesus and so I'm I've been a slave to fear, and I repent of that. What are you a slave to? What are you a slave to? (laughs) Right now, the Holy Spirit's putting a finger on your heart. What are we going to do? We're going to respond to it with confession and godly sorrow and let the grace of Jesus fill our hearts? Or are we going to continue to keep God at an arm's length? Well, I pray that today's the day that God stirs us, that He does something amongst the men here, that men you lean forward, that men you open your Bibles. That you lead your wives. That some of you that have just kind of been here chilling, consuming. That you, like me, will get our eyes off of our belly button. And we'll, we'll lean forward into this beautiful mission that God has given us. So that we can become a city that God blesses people through. And here's the last verse. Verse thirty eight. Because of all this we make a firm covenant in writing. On this sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. And so the people realize their sin, they repented of it, and we'll read about the covenant next week that they make with God, but basically they're standing up and they're saying, We're not going to be slaves anymore. We're not going to walk like this anymore. We are God's people. I am God's man. You are God's woman. Let's break free from this fear and slavery. Jesus, in just a moment, we're going to receive communion together as a church. I don't know what the issues are. You do. There's people in this room that are bound up by a thousand different things. No, we haven't crafted a golden calf. But we've let our hearts be seduced by all manner of idols. No, our idols are not little statues of Buddha. There are things that are even more Destructive because they're invisible. Social status, a circle of friends, finances, looks, whether or not the right group of people befriend us. All sorts of things grip our hearts like the tentacles of an octopus, pulling us down to the depths until, and it will not be satisfied until we are drowned spiritually. God, today, would you help us recognize those things? And would you help us realize that Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection frees us from those things. The, the meal that we're about to participate together in just a few moments, that it symbolizes the day that that was broken, that Jesus' body was torn to shreds, that he took the penalty, he took the wrath, he took the punishment on himself, to free us from self-absorption and sin and idolatry. And so as we take the bread and we drink the juice, God, let us remember that we are free, but we need constant reminders of our freedom. So God, would you blow afresh in our hearts as we repent? Would you respond? with winds of freedom and ultimately God would you do with us whatever you please so that your name would be made great and we would have great joy and delight in your greatness I pray this in the name of Jesus Amen